Welcome to Straight Outta Health IT. Getting into health tech is rough, but here's an unfiltered dialogue of healthcare leaders and influencers covering a wide variety of issues affecting healthcare and the health tech industry. And now your host, Christopher Cunney. Happy New Year, everyone. This is Christopher Cunney, and welcome back to another episode of Straight Outta Health IT. I hope all of you had an amazing 2022 and you're looking forward to what 2023 has to offer. I know I am. And I'm wanting to start off this year with an amazing guest that I'm excited to have on the program and to discuss a topic that's really near and dear to my heart, which is the state of pediatric health care here in the United States. And before we get started, I want to share something I was reading earlier today in preparation for this segment. It's a recent op-ed that came out in the Boston Globe titled, America Needs to Invest in Pediatric Health Care. And the article, what was actually an op-ed, but the op-ed stated healthcare resources for children have been trimmed down so lean that any unexpected surge in mental health disorders or a bump in RSV infections threaten the whole system. It also goes on to say that nationally, pediatric inpatient beds have declined by almost 20% in the decade before the pandemic as hospitals started shifting to more profitable adult care units. These closures have resulted in fewer pediatric trained medical and nursing staff in community hospitals. The reality of it is that the consequences of these decisions have led to a crisis in the healthcare system in the United States. And who better to talk about this crisis than my guest today, Dr. Alana J. Arnold, CEO and founder of Premier Pediatric Solutions, LLC. And before I bring Dr. Arnold on, let me take a few moments to read a little bit of her very, very impressive resume. Dr. Arnold is a board-certified pediatric emergency medicine physician and leader in the pediatric emergency medicine field. She is originally from Philadelphia. After attending Princeton University for undergrad, she completed her medical training across the country, starting in Oakland at the Children's Hospital Oakland and then finishing up in Houston at Texas Children's Hospital for Pediatric Emergency Medicine. Her work integrates process-driven pediatric simulations into adult emergency rooms, hospitals, and urgent care to improve pediatric outcomes. Her work has demonstrated a two-fold increase in clinician competency in handling pediatric emergency medical cases and a seven-fold cost savings for ERs. Her simulations target clinicians and clinical settings that don't have pediatric emergency medicine trained physicians. Dr. Arnold is very, very passionate about improving pediatric emergency medicine in the community. Her work equips adult emergency medicine clinicians with the proper proper knowledge, supplies, protocols to care for over 30 million children that pass through their systems each year. Additionally, she's a health education advocate for children in high-risk communities. She values health literacy and strives to deliver medical knowledge to young children so they can lead healthy lives as adults. Join me in welcoming Dr. Arnold to the program. Hi, Dr. Arnold. 
Hi, Christopher. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much. I'm happy well, to be here. It's such a pleasure to have you here as well. And as I say to all my guests that join my program, you know, the resume is very impressive, obviously, but it doesn't really tell the full story of who you are, Dr. Arnold, and your journey. And how did you choose this profession, your passion for pediatric medicine, and now your passion to address some of the challenges and gaps associated with this part of our industry as well. So if you wouldn't mind, just take a few minutes and share with the audience a little bit about your own personal story. Yes, absolutely. So as you mentioned, I'm born and raised in Philadelphia. At a young age, I was always interested in medicine. I had always done well in school. I was looking to find a career path, a passion that would allow me to be able to interact with all types of people from different backgrounds and somehow impact and improve their life. So I found medicine to fit that calling because you can meet any type of person and hopefully improve their day and have an impact that's going to be positive on their life. When I was in medical school, I was drawn to pediatrics because, well, first off, kids are hilarious. They're very honest. I think that they keep it real. They are very transparent about what they like and don't like. So that's very refreshing for me. They don't usually come with any alternative motive or agenda when they're seeking medical care. You kind of get what you see. And also it was very fulfilling for me when I was on my pediatrics rotation to know that if the proper care is delivered to the child, you're able to help them. They're very resilient and you can rest assured that you're contributing to them being able to go on to lead a happy and healthy life. And so that was very touching to me and definitely struck a chord in terms of being able to help someone and allow a child to grow into be a happy, productive adult in society. So I always very much enjoyed my pediatrics rotation and knew that that was the field that I wanted to go in. When I was kind of figuring out a subspecialty, I always enjoyed the ER environment. I very much like having the ability to have multiple diagnoses in my differential, consider different things. I also enjoy the fast pace of the ER. Another aspect that is very enjoyable for me is the procedures. I like working with my hands. So you can have a patient come in, they have a cut, you can stitch them up. Next patient comes in, might be very sick and they need a spinal tap, for example. So it's a variety of procedures that you get to do without having the extreme stress and schedule of being a surgeon or in the OR, which I appreciate. And you meet all types of different people And given it can sometimes be a stressful encounter, it's always been good to be able to build rapport quickly try to have a lot of empathy for the patients and the families that you deal with. So it was something that really clicked with me in terms of being able to help a child in an often stressful environment and allow the family to, you know, go on about their business once they receive the proper care. And finally, the last component is that I don't like being on call. I like having a good (laughs) good work-life balance. Exactly. And so it's shift work. You clock in, clock out, see the patients as they come, take care of them as best as you can, and kind of move on to the next thing. So those components really drew me into pediatric emergency medicine. And as I went through my career and my training, I was very 
lucky to be at top institutions and, you know, level one trauma centers and have a lot of acuity and see different types of patient populations, different diagnoses from not only around the country, but even around the world. We had a lot of international patients we would interact with, especially in fellowship down in Houston at Texas Children's Hospital. And after doing my training, and now that I'm an attending, I have kind of stepped into this leadership role of being a medical director in the community setting. And I realized that there is a huge, huge gap in the pediatric care that's being delivered in our communities. A lot of people don't know that four out of five children, when they seek medical care, they're actually seen in a community setting. So your nearest ER, an urgent care or a standalone hospital that's close to you, it's logical that you'll go seek care there. And unfortunately, there's only about 5% of the hospitals in the country that are dedicated children's hospitals. And most times when you are seeking care in the community, the provider, although well-trained, is not specifically trained in pediatric care. And therein lies the problem in terms of understanding the physiology of how children present when they're sick and the issues of recognizing when a child is sick are very different from an adult. And so often, sometimes diagnoses are missed or they're mismanaged, or simply there's no oversight to have proper equipment, for example, on site. You know, children come in all different sizes. So for example, if you have a kid come in with a broken arm, you're going to have to have the proper material to splint them in the proper size. And a lot of these issues in terms of equipment, supply, checklists are just not regulated, unfortunately. And so a lot of the kids are just not getting the proper care and they're having to be transferred outside of the system, which translates into increased costs to the healthcare system or delays in healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so this is what really drew me into doing this work in my consulting business. No, that's great. So, well, first of all, thank you for your service and, you know, providing care to really the most vulnerable parts of our population and those who need to have advocates like yourself, our children, who Mm -hmm. often don't know how to advocate for them and most often don't know how to advocate for themselves. And we need to be very sensitive to their conditions. And to your point, we can't treat them like we treat adults as well, too. So thank you for taking on this challenge and this mission in your professional journey. I did want to go ahead and jump into some of the things you shared as well, too. You know, prior to the early fall increase in RSV, the respiratory illnesses, access to pediatric inpatient beds were already critically strained by a number of different factors, including the mental health crisis. So and with the youth mental health needs that often are met in the community, frequently the ED is the place where they go, right? For almost everything, to your point, or urgent care facilities. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, for weeks, they're sitting there trying to get the right type of proper care, whether psychiatric or physical. Talk to me, and you, you touched on some of these things in your introduction there as well, too, but talk to me a little bit more about the, some of the challenges and issues that families have when seeking medical attention specifically for adolescents and children in their local communities. Yes. So as you mentioned, the state of just access to proper care and the specialists is quite honestly, it's dire. There aren't enough medical providers for the demand. So as you mentioned, especially during the pandemic, mental health has been at the forefront 
of healthcare and the pandemic just exacerbated a lot of these underlying issues that might not have been as transparent as before or taken note of, I should say, because they've always been there. But I think the pandemic just exacerbated and highlighted things. So, for example, mental health services for teenagers are always in smaller amounts than adult, unfortunately. Having pediatric mental health services is a continual challenge. Right. So, and that just primarily due to the lack of professionals who are experienced in how to treat people. Yeah, um, it's just kind of a numbers game. So, yes, there are less, for example, child psychiatrists than adult psychiatrists, but also knowing how to see and diagnose and understand those symptoms of mental health illness. So a child might be 13, 14, 15. They demonstrate different symptoms than an adult would for a depression. So having parents or school teachers, you know, someone who interacts often with the kids understand and know how to ask questions about mental health, how to screen for those symptoms is really, really important. And often that type of training has not been done or hasn't been rolled out effectively in school settings. And we could, you know, go on and on about teachers certainly are stretched very thin and overworked and whatnot. But a lot of the mental health issues have gone undiagnosed and unnoticed in in kids. And so often the ER is the only place because we're open 24-7 where these issues come to a head. So it could be just a crisis or a break. So someone with suicidal thoughts or a suicide attempt, they'll come to the ER. Of course, we do our best to stabilize them in the acute setting. So if there's a medical issue, say that they've taken medications, overdosed on something, we do our best to stabilize them medically, but then it is not uncommon that the patient is going to sit in the ER while waiting for placement in a psychiatric facility that takes children. And as you mentioned, this can lead to a huge strain on the healthcare system because the ER, even in the best of worlds, is just not an ideal setting for someone who has a mental health issue and stressors going on. Um, Especially a child. Yeah, exactly. It can be a very chaotic environment, even in, you know, a dedicated children's hospital. And so mental health has been a, a real issue because the kids often sit around for hours, sometimes days, depending on the location, trying to wait for placement. And that only exacerbates, you know, their mental health crisis. So exactly. it's been extremely challenging, especially in recent years for the healthcare providers to help these kids who are in crisis and get them to proper placement in an effective manner. It's so sad, you know, when you think about our healthcare system, we like to think it's one of the best ones in the world. But in fact, we struggle and fall woefully behind when it comes to things like, you know, pediatric care and mental health and a combination of all those things as well, too. You know, a pediatric bed is it's just in a different section of a hospital, but it's staffed by nurses and physicians and trained professionals who understand children's diseases, right? Exactly. Uh, and the patient's bodies. And not only that they're smaller, but there's different physiology associated with that as well, too. And so now understanding that, and here's probably a loaded question, you know, what can the government, you know, communities do to try to address this shortage in, you know, the workforce in this space? Should we consider options like investing in nursing schools or increasing loan forgiveness programs or some other things to entice people to pursue this as a a choice in their career. I'm just curious from your perspective, you know, what's the magic bullet if there's one? 
Yeah. Well, <laughs> the short answer is it's twofold. There is no magic bullet. I think it has to be multifaceted. I would say initially, to your point, all of those things you mentioned would be great helps, right? The cost of medical education is astronomical compared to other countries similar. So if you look at European countries, for example, I have friends overseas and they are blown away at the cost of medical training in the U.S. To give perspective, you know, usually it runs several thousands of dollars perhaps per year, say somewhere like in France for your medical education, like medical school. And here in the U.S., it is not uncommon that it's going to run you 40, 50, 60 K a year to go to medical school. So the cost of medical training definitely needs to be addressed because even in the best of worlds, if you do have the means, that is still a huge amount of money to be paying. And then in other cases, which is the majority of cases, most people are taking loans out and you're kind of saddling them with tons of debt even before they get a chance to start their careers and their life and whatnot. So it is very challenging and certainly dissuades people from pursuing those careers because of that financial burden that they're going to take on. A lot of people may argue, well, certainly later on, especially for a physician, you're going to have a high earning potential and you'll make it up. That's kind of a double-edged sword because certainly you will be making a good living, but it still does not change the fact that you have large amounts of loans to repay while trying to start your career, while trying to start a family, buy a house, et cetera, et cetera. And so it kind of snowballs and is very unattractive to a lot of people to take on that amount of debt, especially for a delayed gratification because medical school is four years. Residency is easily three to four, five, six, even seven years in certain cases. And then a fellowship, which is a subspecialty training, is easily one, two or three years. So For example, for me, it was a full decade of training that I did um, without earning any real income Mm -hmm. while in my 20s. And that's a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow. And it's understandable that that would dissuade people from for pursuing the career. So that's kind of the financial component. I think another part is really having programs, government funded or otherwise, that actually invest in the children in this country. Exactly. As you mentioned, there are different programs that help in terms of health literacy, right? Having programming in schools, for example, from an early age would really help in terms of building health literacy. So kids become well-versed in what is healthy eating, what is overall wellness, what is mental health, all those things that should be addressed at an early age in a you know structured, safe setting. I think there should be funding and growth in that area. And then when you look at kind of on the clinical side, further down the line, there should be services that help treat and address these issues in terms of the medical knowledge gap. So for example, my work focuses on going to these urgent cares, going to these ERs where they're seeing large pediatric volumes, but they simply do not have the training. Right. Think about the average ER doctor who completes their residency, he or she may only have 10 to 15% of their training focused on children. That simply is not enough. And it's actually not fair to them to say, okay, now you can go on and take care of any child that you see in the community. It's simply not true because there's a large amount of medical knowledge that you need. And the physiology is completely different in children as opposed to adults. So my work focuses on 
going into these centers, the urgent cares, the ERs, and up leveling, upskilling the clinicians who are already working there so that they feel more comfortable to see kids, to make sure that the children are going to get the proper care when they present to these facilities. So I think being serious about having standards across these urgent cares and standalone hospitals and ERs that pop up is really, really important. You know, the uh, different programs and, and different societies have released data on this and that barely half of ERs across the country feel equipped to take care of children. Right. That's an absurdly high number to say that. That is ridiculous. Coin flip to say that you feel comfortable taking care of children appropriately. And again, it's not to knock the competency of the clinicians. It's simply that they do not have the support and skill set to take care of kids. And so services like mine focus on giving them those skills so that they're able to properly diagnose, manage, and care for the child, and then also transfer if need be, if it's out of their scope of practice. But there really should be some type of regulation and standardization where you can say safely that a hospital or an urgent care or ER is what I call pediatric ready, meaning they are proficient, they are comfortable and capable to at least initially treat, stabilize a patient that they'll see, a pediatric patient, Mm -hmm. and be able to give the proper care. And I'm uh, let, me, let me just stop you there for a second. I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah. I'm just curious too that you know I've gone to the ED, ER, urgent care facilities before, and I know I've walked in. I've seen a decent percentage of the patients there being children. Obviously, moms and dads bringing their kids in for whatever the reason is. You know, sprained my arm, broke my arm, not feeling well, fever, etc. I'm just curious. You know, you talked about the low percentage of those facilities not having adequate professionals who understand pediatric care. I'm just curious if you can give us a swag on this. What percentage of the patients that come through the ED are presented as pediatric patients? Is it 10%, 20%, 30% based on your, I mean, I know it's anecdotal evidence, yeah. but I'm just so, curious perspective. Yeah, you can certainly say, I would say ballpark across the nation would be anyone who it's variable depending on the region that patient and, and, is. And I, don't, and I won't hold you to the number, but I'm just. Yeah, but I would say anywhere from like 10 to 25% right. could be pediatric patients. Exactly. And so it's not a negligent amount, right? If you think of your running sure. a little ER. And it's also kind of like a risk benefit. So, and that's kind of where the, I guess the ethical part comes in, right? Like, is it worth it to say, oh, well, you know, we only see 10% kids and, you know, we're not going to invest in this. Right. Well, it's going to be an issue if that's your child that happens to be in that 10%, you know? Absolutely. You know, I think that's where there's a, a big discrepancy because again, most people, unless it's affecting them or they're specifically in the healthcare field, this is something that's not talked about a lot. Most laymen, rightfully so, it's logical, you would assume that when I go to a hospital and I bring my kid, they understand and know what's going on. And unfortunately, there is enough of a gap in the training and kind of the access to standardized protocols and procedures and whatnot treatment plans that there's still a huge disconnect. There are issues, you know, once you have misdiagnoses or mismanagement, the cost of litigation is huge for a lot of these hospitals. The average payout 
for a pediatric case is over $600,000. You know, the effects of mismanagement of asthma is critical. Black kids are seven times more likely to die from asthma compared to their white counterparts. So when you start getting into the numbers of how this is directly affecting children's lives and especially black and brown kids' lives, financially, it's an issue because you have lots of malpractice, huge costs. Over 600 million bucks are spent each year in transfer costs for pediatric cases because they're seen at a facility. They're not properly trained. They're not properly equipped. Okay, now we have to call an ambulance. Now we have right. to get more resources and get them to where they need to be. And a lot of it is certainly reasonable to upskill and teach them. And that's where my consulting services come in, in terms sure. of having the proper training having the proper oversight of proper supplies and equipment on hand and access to proper protocols so that you can care for the patients properly when they come in. You know, I was reading some data from the CDC that said almost 20,000 infants died in the United States in 2022. And the five leading causes of infant death were birth defects, preterm mm-hmm. birth, sudden infant death syndrome, injuries, and maternal pregnancy complications. And so it sounds like, you know, a lot of the things that are impacting deaths of our, you know, our children are preventable in some cases, you know, correct me Mm -hmm. if I'm wrong, is it a lack of education, especially in black and brown communities, which have a higher rate of deaths than their white counterparts. Maybe you can expound just a little bit on that as well. Yeah. So absolutely. There are a lot of components that are preventable. The rates of infant mortality amongst black populations is much higher than that of white populations in the country. A lot of it comes from the health of the mother, obviously. And we can go, you know, we could talk about the factors that impact health. So stress, yeah, social determinants are impacting the health of the mother. So Mm -hmm. you already have a mother who's at a higher risk when carrying the baby. And then it's simply, again, it goes back to health literacy and access and knowledge. A lot of people do not seek prenatal care in a timely manner if they do at all. And when they do present for their prenatal care, A lot of times, some of the concerns I have friends, you know, that this has happened to who are the physicians themselves, where their concerns during their pregnancy are simply dismissed because they're black. Right. Someone saying something doesn't feel right or such and such is hurting or I'm worried about this and they're seeking medical care and their concerns are being dismissed due to racial biases. There have been numerous studies that document the rates of pain medications being given to Black patients versus white counterparts mm-hmm. is much lower. And, and it all goes to the perception of what someone's pain is and, and how you're going to treat them. So it's a kind of multifaceted issue in terms of the health of the, the mother is often an issue, but also the access to health care is an issue and not as readily available in a lot of Black communities. And then when they do seek the medical care, There are issues with clinicians being biased, Mm -hmm. dismissing their concerns that are going to lead to higher morbidity for the child and mother. So what can parents do to build their, especially in these communities as well, too, but just across the board, what can parents do to actually build their health literacy and become better advocates? So when they are told something that 
doesn't feel quite right or doesn't make sense, they know how to advocate better for themselves or what options that might be available to them. So there are countless resources online, but the simplest thing that I always tell friends, loved ones, whomever, ask questions. Now, it seems you know very simple to say this, but ask questions. So as something comes up, you have some ailment, whatever it is, keep a running on your smartphone Keep a notes section of questions that you want addressed at your next clinical visit so that when you are there actually in front of the clinician, the provider, you're holding them accountable to help you understand what's going on with your body. I will stand up for my clinicians and say that we are stressed, we're burnt out and overworked, but part of our job is to explain what's going on Mm -hmm. to your patient and help them understand what's going on with their body and, and what needs to be done about it. So asking questions, even if you don't have a question in the moment, just keeping kind of a running log of questions so that you can speak to those issues when you see your clinician are really, really important. So if someone says you have such and such diagnosis, ask them, okay, what is that? What does that mean? How could I have prevented this or how did this happen? And someone's giving you a new medication, ask them what the medication is for. What are the potential side effects? Why is it important to take this medication? Mm -hmm. Those simple things will not only help the patient understand what's going on, but hopefully is going to help them change their behaviors and be able to broaden their health literacy so that they have more autonomy and more knowledge about their own health care. And, always- and is it okay for that patient or that advocate to, if they don't like the answer, don't understand the answer, to ask for a second opinion or ask for... A hundred percent. Absolutely. I'm a big proponent of, you know, Finding your general doctor is like dating. It has to be mutual, right? You know, for whatever reason you don't gel with your clinician, it is 100% your right to find someone else because your health is critical. It's very important. So you want to make sure that you have good rapport. This goes back to what we spoke about a little earlier Mm -hmm. in terms of racial biases. If there's some cultural differences or whatever may be the case, where you feel like you're not being heard, you're not being appreciated. Right. It is completely your right to move on to the next professional and find someone where you feel safe, you feel comfortable, and you feel like you're being taken seriously and being respected in terms of your health care. So that is really, really important that people feel empowered to speak up about those issues and holding the clinicians accountable in terms of the care that they're delivering. No, that's great. You know, we're running low on time and I do want to pivot real quickly to some of the work that you're doing to help close this gap around knowledge for pediatric patients who are being seen in these health facilities. And I know you've got some technology you're developing, a platform that will hopefully will help provide additional resources for clinicians who are faced with pediatric patients that are entering into the ED or in the urgent care facility. So I wanted you to spend a few minutes talking about your work there and and how things are coming along. Absolutely. So the areas that I'm working in are kind of twofold. One is the clinical simulation. So I have developed a suite of six high yield pediatric simulations for clinicians to run through to help them improve not only their medical knowledge, but also bridge the gap in terms of communication. When you have a sick pediatric patient that comes into an urgent care ER where you do not have 
pediatric specialist on site. And by that, I mean a pediatric emergency medicine trained physician. So that content in terms of the simulations have definitely improved the care. We've seen a sevenfold increase in revenue mm -hmm. in the facilities that have gone through the trainings that I've conducted. Okay, also, stop there. <laughs> Repeat that again. <laughs> sevenfold Sevenfold increase. increase. Yes. Hospital administrators, ED administrators. Yes. yes. Sevenfold increase in your revenue. Yes. Okay. And it stems from once you know what you're doing, you're going to be more efficient with the patient care you right. deliver. You're going to have decreased costs out of your system for transfers because you have proper medical knowledge on site. Right. And then you're going to boost your reputation, right? People talk. If you give good care to a family, you're going to get repeat customers. And so all of those components have added in augmenting the revenue that we've seen once the clinicians are properly trained through the simulations that I do. That's Additionally, right. we've been able to demonstrate a nearly threefold increase in just the clinician competency themselves. They feel more comfortable right. with pediatric cases and are more well-versed in recognizing signs of sick patients and what to do with them. I also help with having proper supplies on hand. We mentioned that unless you're pediatric trained, you don't know the proper sizing or the proper suture to use or things that you might take for granted. For example, special devices, you need to remove a bean from a kid's nose, for example. Sure. So having proper supplies is another component and, and critically important. And then also giving access to the standardized protocols that are available at children's hospitals, but are not disseminated into the community. We have some fantastic children's hospitals in this country, but unfortunately they're very siloed mm -hmm. and that information does not spread into the community. So many of these urgent cares and ERs are kind of winging it as best they can sure. to do protocols for asthma or a protocol for, we mentioned the respiratory season, bronchiolitis has been very big in the news. So how do you take care of a 10-month-old who's having troubles breathing and things like that? So the clinical component in terms of the simulations has been very important in making sure they have proper supplies and protocols. The second portion of the consulting work is focused on building a platform an IT platform that will allow us to integrate into the workflow of these non-pediatric clinicians. So most clinicians, when they are in a suburban or rural setting, they may be hours away from a pediatric hospital, right. but kids are still coming in. So I am working on developing an app, IT support system that will pull real-time vital signs for the patient that they're seeing right in front of them exactly. and then go through an algorithm to dictate the proper treatment plan. So for example, if you have an asthmatic, a patient, you know, six years old with such and such vital signs, that information is inputted into the application and it will lead you to the proper treatment plan so that you're getting that pediatric emergency medicine specialty care mm -hmm. without having to have a pediatric ER doctor on site. So this is something that is critically important because it's gonna have a huge impact. 95% um, of hospitals have electronic health records, so it would be readily accessible. And it's going to help a lot of clinicians kind of take that mental burden off of them, sure. um, feel supported so that they can give the proper care 
again, leading to better outcomes, less strain on the healthcare system, decreasing the cost of transfers, all of those things financially are incentivized for the hospital. But ultimately, the goal is to just simply improve the care for the kids that they're seeing. No, absolutely. It sounds like this is going to be a game changer. So if we have some folks that are listening right now that are interested in learning more about you know, the work that you're doing in this space, how would they reach you? Absolutely. So the two easiest ways to reach me are on LinkedIn. You can find me, Alana J. Arnold on LinkedIn and connect with me there. Or you can go to our website at www.premierpediatricsolutions.com. Our company, Premier Pediatric Solutions, you can do an intake call where we can collaborate and kind of see where we can assist your facility to help in delivering better pediatric care and go from there in terms of the consulting work. But you can find me on those two avenues, either on LinkedIn, Alana J. Arnold, or online at premierpediatricsolutions.com. Well, Dr. Arnold, as always, there's never enough time to continue exploring a very compelling and very interesting conversation. So I've got to have you back on the program to continue this discussion further because our audience, especially those who have young ones, want to learn more about how to advocate for their children and how to improve their health literacy when it comes to pediatric care as well, too. So we'll have to get you back on the program. Thank you so much for taking time out your busy schedule to come and share your insights and thoughts and the work that you're doing. We're very excited to see that you are now starting to help disrupt the industry by providing these types of services and technologies that will support clinicians' ability to provide better care to, again, the most vulnerable parts of our population, our children. Thank you for your service, and I look forward to uh, having you back on the program in the near future as well. Thank you so much, Christopher. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Well, you know, that's a wrap, fans. Thank you again for taking time out of your busy schedules as well to join us today on Straight Out of Health IT. As always, your feedback and commentary are always welcomed. Join us on all the major podcast platforms, whether that's Amazon, Google, Spotify, you name it, we're there. And then I actually just launched an Instagram page as well, too, called Straight Outta Health IT. Come check us out there. We'll, it's a great place to provide feedback. You can get links to the other shows that we're doing and other events that we may be involved in in the future. Take care. Look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Straight Outta Health IT. And thanks again for all your support. God bless. Thank you so much for listening to Straight Outta Health IT. We hope you enjoyed today's guest. For more unfiltered dialogue of healthcare leaders and influencers, be sure to tune in next week. For the show notes, transcripts, and resources, please visit Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite streaming platform. We invite you to give us feedback by reaching out to Christopher Cunny on LinkedIn, just searching for Straight Outta Health IT, and you'll find us. We are constantly having live discussions about diverse topics in the industry. 